1: Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature The Physics of Roulette Making Science Rock, an interactive cake. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen.
2: have analysed the physics behind the game of roulette to improve their odds of winning. The game comprises of a wheel and a small ball spun in the opposite direction on the rim. Losing momentum, the ball eventually comes to rest in one of the numbered pockets after hitting one of the metal deflectors. The study considered the standard European version, which possesses 37 pockets, and going by the assumption that the casino would typically pay 35 to 1? calculated the monetary return to be negative 2.7%. In other words, for every dollar that you would bet, on average, you would get 97.3 cents in return. The paper, published in the American Institute of Physics Journal, Chaos, has a mathematical model which separates the movement of the ball to when the ball has enough momentum to remain in the rim, when the ball leaves the rim, when the ball is rotating on the strata, and the ball reaches the deflectors. By knowing the initial conditions of the ball, that is, the position, velocity, and acceleration, which they achieved through determining how often the ball passed a particular location on the wheel, statistician Michael Small from the University of Western Australia and Dr. Chai kong Tai of the Hong Kong Polytechnic University were able to correctly predict which half the ball would eventually fall in 13 of the 22 conducted trials, thus increasing the typical return to 18%. They followed this by conducting a further 700 trials, this time using a mounted digital camera to obtain the mathematical parameters. The model made several assumptions with regards to angular acceleration and the various forces acting upon the ball, as well as a level table. When they considered a table which was tilted, they found the prediction to be much simpler, suggesting that gamblers would do well to keep an eye out for a crooked table. The researchers are quick to point out that roulette is still very much a game of chance. The outcome would likely be influenced by forces including frictional resistance and axial spin, which the Metal did not consider.
1: I think it's it's really interesting because I've read... About research in the 1970s that was done into the physics of roulette. Um, there's a book called The Eudaimonic Pie by Thomas Bass, and I recommend you go and look for it in your library or look for it online. Basically, it's a group of physicists in the 1970s who worked at the physics of roulette, who got an old secondhand roulette wheel to play with, and then tested their predictions on the wheel and fine tuned it, and they worked out if they measured some initial conditions, they would be able to predict which octant, which, if you divide the wheel into eighths, and being able to divide it into which octant gives you a giant benefit. You don't have to know exactly which number the ball will land on. If you know which octant of the wheel, you can make a steady profit. Mm-hmm. So what they did, though, remember, this is the 70s. And in the 70s, there was not the miniaturization of things we have today. There were no mobile phones, for example. So how do you get to use your physics in a casino to make money? What they did was they managed to use 1970s technology to miniaturise basic computers into their shoes. The shoe computers were controlled by heel switches with a little bit of feedback of a tiny electric shock to the sole. And they used magnets to communicate the initial conditions from shoe to shoe, so that the people watching the initial conditions weren't the people who did the calculations, and again, who wasn't the person who made the bet. So it was harder to spot that there was something naughty going on. So they set all this up, and they built their equipment, and they went off, I think, to Atlantic City... And they didn't go to the big casinos with the new wheels. They went to the older casino with the older wheels because they got the slight tilt, as you were saying. And when there's a slight tilt, the physics becomes easier and you can make the predictions. And they started winning and winning and winning. And they were very careful to not stay too long at one casino, not to be too obviously one person winning. They had disguises. They did all sorts of things to make sure. But of course, inevitably, it wasn't the physics that let them down. It was human nature. Some of them got greedy.
2: Oh, as, as you do.
1: As you do. Mm-hmm. And then they started breaking the rules about not getting caught, and they got caught. So I recommend reading the book, but it looks like the noble tradition of trying to win at games of chance with physics is uh, continuing.
2: So who was the author?
1: Thomas Bass, B-A-S-S, or Bass.
2: So was he one of the researchers behind the people that analyze the physics, or was he someone that was just like a historian?
1: Thomas Bass was actually one of the physicists who went off to gamble using the roulette physics. So he's the one that tells the story. And it's remarkable that they managed to miniaturise. I mean, computers in the 1970s was when the Apple II came out. To miniaturise a computer that would work in your shoe and that didn't even use radio, but then used magnetic communication to bypass being overheard by the pit bosses in the casino is amazing.
2: Mm, Very much
1: Disney let you have your cake and eat it too. Disney Corporation have patented a cake decoration that projects video onto the icing of a cake or other edible object. The birthday boy or girl could put the knife through their favourite Disney character acting in their favourite Disney film to cut a slice of cake. For adults, the cake could show a waterfall, the surface of the sun or any interesting video. It could be home movies. The fun doesn't stop there. The cake can be digitally interactive. The projector has sensors that can tell when the shape of the cake is changed. The patent suggests that if the surface of a lake is projected, then cutting a slice could trigger a waterfall. Disney also suggests ghosts flying around tombstones that move out of the way of the knife. And for when it's not Halloween, butterflies. So cutting the cake could make it bleed sparkles, or touching the cake could trigger a volcanic eruption, or the piece of cake you've cut could appear to change into something healthy. 3D printing of electronics. Optomech Incorporated have invented an aerosol jet system to print electronics onto parts of an unmanned aircraft drone printed itself using fused deposition modelling by Stratasys for the US military. Fused deposition modelling is a 3D printing system where tiny grains of metal or composite are heated like toner in a laser printer to create layer after layer of an object. Aerosol jet printing is a brand new method of printing very fine structures down to 10 micrometers across by spraying them as a fine jet onto a surface. The layers that are printed can be as thin as 10 nanometers. Aerosol jet printing has been used to print solar cells. Combining these two techniques, the aerosol jet printing and the fused depositional modelling lets you build complex 3D shapes with sensors and electrical components built right in. At this stage, you still need to add the motors and the chips. 3D printers enable lighter weight mechanical structures and electronics printed directly onto the structures frees up space for additional payloads. Also, the process has a positive impact on the environment by using fewer materials. 3D printing is an additive manufacturing process. You only add what you need, so there's much less waste. Whale songs that sound human. A white beluga whale called Knock has amazed researchers in the United States by seeming to imitate the voice of humans. In fact, the whale song sounded so eerily human that divers initially thought it was a human voice. Handlers at the National Marine Mammal Foundation in San Diego heard mumbling in 1984 coming from a tank containing whales and dolphins that sounded like two people chatting far away. It wasn't until one day, after a diver surfaced from the tank and asked, Who told me to get out? Did researchers realise the garble came from a captive male beluga whale? For several years they recorded its spontaneous sounds while it was underwater and when it surfaced. An acoustic analysis revealed the human-like sounds were several octaves lower than typical whale calls and has the same rhythm as human speech. Scientists think the whale's close proximity to people allowed it to listen to and mimic human conversation. It had to have done this by changing the pressure in its nasal cavities, which is quite an effort. After four years of copying people, the whale went back to sounding like a whale, emitting high-pitched noises. Unfortunately, Nock, the beluga whale, died five years ago at the National Marine Mammal Foundation in California, where he lived for 30 years. Dolphins and parrots have been taught to mimic the patterns of human speech, but it's very rare for an animal to do it spontaneously. The study is not the first time a whale has sounded human. Scientists who have studied sounds of white whales in the wild sometimes heard what sounded like shouting children. Caretakers at the Vancouver Aquarium in Canada previously said they heard one of the white whales say its name. The research was published online last week in the journal Current Biology. (laughs)
0: It's <laughs>
1: you're listening to diffusion science radio send email to diffusion at 2scr.com we're brought to you across australia on the community radio network into sydney on 2scr and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com What happens when you take a comic science nerd and musician together on stage? It's an experiment that's bound to have exciting results. Darren Vogrig is a CSIRO science communicator by day, but by night he teams up with Chris, the comedian, and Marty, the muso, to form the band Ologism. Formerly known as the Great Big Science Gig, Ologism is all about expressing the wonder of science to the masses through rock and roll. Julianne Popple recently spoke to Darren, about the art of making science rock.
3: What's your, I guess, mission or objective in doing a science rock band? It's really to attract people into science that may not get into science. If we said, hey, this is a science show, the people who are the converts who are into science are going to come along, but the other people who aren't really into science, who we're trying to sort of like, you know, tease into science or expose them to science or get them to appreciate the importance and what science does for their life, they're not necessarily going to come. So to try and give them something that might be, you know, a, a fun show with some, you know, music, you a, a live sort of performance, and sneak some science in there, sort of, so uh, they might not realise it, but they're getting to learn a bit about science and appreciate it. A bit underhanded in that way, but uh, that's our our mission, really. How do you find inspiration for your songs? There's all sorts of things we, we look at, you know, you'll get all, you know, the, the internet's great and there's science alerts and all different sorts of things and all the regular sorts of things like New Sciences and Scientific America and all those other things are out there. We're very fortunate that the two of us work within CSIRO and so, you know, CSIRO has lots of great things out there. Even working within CSIRO, you don't realise the diversity and the breadth of what's happening out there within CSIRO, just not just the CSI, but Australian scientists and all the different universities and all the different places around Australia. There's really amazing diversity and it just astonishes me the sorts of things that are going on there that you, you dig a bit deeper and, and talk to the people who are involved and find out what, what they're aiming to do in the next one or two or three years. It's incredible. And how do you go about turning that into a song? Um, some are more challenging than others. In effect, look, we get out there and talk about the science. If we have an actual piece of equipment or thing that's out there being developed, we will use that. Um, if we can somehow wrangle in some audience participation and get some people up on stage to have fun with us, we'll use that. If we can think of nothing else, we'll write a song. But inspiration, sometimes it sits there in the back of your brain for you know, months and months and something will pop in there. We're, we're, we're very fortunate we have a, a musician who works with us. So, you know, the two of us Chris, who works at CYRO in Melbourne, as a bit of an MC in stand-up, comedian, and stand up comedian and scientist, obviously. I'm sort of part musician, sort of scientist, but we have a real, a real musician who helps us along the way. Excellent. And uh, can you tell me a bit about the song we're about to play? The song that we're about to play, we have many, many songs, we just choose one. This is called DHA, which stands for docosahexanoic acid, otherwise known as omega-3 fatty acids. And the great thing about this is that, you know, you've probably read about this, it's very good for your health and all the health health benefits for uh, Alzheimer's, asthma, keeping kids alert, all those sorts of things. But often it's not easy to get, you might buy the little oil, fish oil tablets in there, kids might complain they taste not particularly good, but this omega 3 fatty acid doesn't actually come from fish anyway, it comes out of the microalgae that's in the sea, the fish eat that, you eat the fish, you get the omega 3 fatty acids from effectively. So scientists are actually looking at ways where they can take the genes from the microalgae Get the genes that produce the amygdala 3 fatty acid, put it into things like cereals and grains, and so when you then make the food, you're actually getting directly those, uh, those health benefits. So it's like a shortcut in effect, and there's, there's ongoing research into that area.
1: That was Darren Vogrig, member of the band Ologism and science communicator at CSIRO, speaking to Julianne Popple about making science rock. For more info on Ologism, check out Ologism, O L O gism.com slash page5 slash index.html or their Facebook page facebook.com slash ologism band and next here's a song from ologism called DHA Trip Mix. Ologism incorporates the talents of Chris krishnapille Darren Vogrig and musician Marty Lubrin and past band member Luke Fitzgerald
4: Acids don't just grow in grains though, they come from microalgae in the sea. So they moved some genes around until they has it. They've got Docosa and all with acid to make your kids a bit. Likely has it If you want your kid's brain Let's it So don't cause a hexanoic acid Don't cause a
0: hexanoic acid
1: DHA And that was the DHA Trip Mix by Ologism Chris Krishna Pele Darren Vogrig Marty Lubrin and Luke Fitzgerald Alfred Nobel was an inventor, and amongst the things he invented was dynamite. He invented dynamite to be used in construction, and in mining, and in doing good for the world. And of course, as a side effect, it was really useful to the military. And they were able to kill a lot of people with it. So Alfred Nobel wanted to make amends, and he founded a foundation to give out prizes for people who improved knowledge and improved the world. And so the Nobel Prizes have recently been awarded. For science, there are three categories. There's chemistry, physics, and physiology, or medicine. So, the Nobel Prizes for 2012, the Nobel Prize for chemistry, was for G-receptors, to Robert Lefkowitz and Brian Kabilka. Now, I only know a little bit about this. This is more Arwen's area, but the G-receptors are the way that cells sense their environment. So how do cells in your body detect light or sound or the chemistry in your blood? They all use G-receptors. Now, the Nobel Prize for Physiology went to Sir John B. Gordon and Shinya Yamanaka. And what was it about? It was about cloning and stem cells. In 1962, Sir John Gordon transplanted an adult frog cell into an egg cell with its nucleus removed, which then went on to develop into a new frog, a cloned identical twin of the adult frog that the cell came from. Now, it's a long wait for Sir John Gordon, from 1962, to get his Nobel Prize today, but he's still around... So he was able to receive his prize. In 2006, Shinya Yamanaka added a protein cocktail to mature mouse cells to turn them into induced pluripotent stem cells that could become any sort of mouse body cell. Yamanaka has since done the same with human cells. So cloning and stem cells. And it just goes to show just how long it can take for the Nobel Committee to hand out a prize. 50 years for poor old Sir John Gordon. So I think the Higgs boson, it may be some time before the Nobel Prize Committee gets around to it. And in physics, it was the favourite, but of course, that would be too quick. So instead, the physics prize goes to Serge Haroche from France and David Wineland from America for individual quantum system control. Sej Haroche has measured individual photons without losing their quantum states using streams of atoms, and David Wineland has measured individual atoms' quantum states using streams of light. So David Wineland creates traps for charged atoms and shoots laser light in to control them. The traps use electric fields to trap electrically charged atoms, keeping them away from heat and radiation, allowing him to conduct the experiments at very, very low temperatures in a vacuum. It's one of the strange properties of quantum mechanics that quanta, the little wavy calls, act as if they are simultaneously in two locations based on the likelihood that they'd be found at either. This is known as superposition. So basically, quanta can be in whatever states it's possible for them to be in. They can be in all of them at once. Their states aren't determined until they're observed and they lose their superposition. It was long thought it would be impossible to demonstrate this in a lab, but Wineland's parlour trick was to hit an atom with laser light, cooling it down to very low temperatures. In a normal computer, a switch has to be either on or off. In a quantum computer, the switches could be on and off at the same time. So if a computer was trying to work out the shortest route around a town for a travelling salesman, the well-known travelling salesman problem, a traditional computer would have to try every possible route, one after the other, and then choose the shortest one. A quantum computer could do the whole calculation in one step, as if the salesman had travelled each route simultaneously. So David Wineland used lasers to cool the atoms down, taking away their vibrational energy. Iron traps are created in ultra-high vacuum using carefully controlled electric fields, and a trap can hold just one iron or several in a row. To achieve the cooling, the laser-based technique removed quanta. Of vibrational energy from the ions. This is a sideband technique of cooling, which is also used to put an ion into the superposition of states. So, these ion control techniques have been used to develop extremely accurate optical clocks and circuits for the beginnings of quantum computers. Serge Haroche takes the opposite approach. He trapped photons of light between superconducting mirrors that are cooled to a fraction above minus. 273 Celsius or absolute zero. So he bounces the light between the mirrors to probe the quantum states of the photons. So the photons can bounce between the two mirrors for more than a tenth of a second before before they decohere, before they touch something and stop having their quantum states. During this time, they might travel 40,000 kilometers His team probed the pulse of light by shooting thousands of rubidium atoms across it one atom at a time. Each atom extracted a small amount of information from the pulse without destroying its coherence. He says his team might be able to learn how to use the atoms to restore a pulse's coherence before it's completely lost. This ability could help researchers design quantum data storage for quantum computers. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you're not in Sydney, then perhaps you could record a story and email it to us. You can send email to diffusion at 2 c r. that's diffusion at 2 scrcom and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. You can send email to diffusion at 2 srcom that's diffusion at 2 scrcom and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Therese Chen and Julianne Popple. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
4: Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.